Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Paul Crenshaw, who's the author of Melt With Me, Coming of Age and Other 80s Perils. Paul, thanks for being here with me today. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, right before you started recording, we were talking about pop culture of the 80s and how excited we are. So, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. It's going to be a lot of fun. Hey. So, yes, and um, I think we are exactly the same age, so it'll be extra fun to talk about um, growing up in two different places with some of these similar things. Um, can you start by talking a bit about how this collection sort of came together and came to be? It's a collection of essays. Um, and so can you talk about sort of how we got to this point? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> this is in my third book, and and the first the first book was just sort of pieced together you know, I was just writing a lot of essays. They didn't really have a lot in common. There was, you know, maybe some current, you know, some themes that were similar, but that was about it. And then my my second book, which is about my time in the military, I recognized that it was a collection a little bit earlier, but honestly, I was really just writing essays about the military. So this one, my third book, I, I was thinking about the concept a lot earlier um, I was thinking just more, I had written several essays about the Cold War and how affected I had been by the Cold War. You know, for instance, the movie The Day After. I still remember when it came out. Uh, we, we watched it and it was horrible and terrifying. And um, I actually live in the city where the movie was shot now, by the way. But, um, um, but I started seeing that thread of the Cold War in there and uh i had been i had been talking to an agent and i i brought that up and and the agent kind of mentioned maybe that you know there should be another thread other than just you know the cold war like what you know that's that's such a huge topic you know to be political or social or cultural or pop cultural or or you know other so many other ways to look at it um but when I started thinking about how much of the pop culture of the 80s was tied to the Cold War, um, that's when I really sort of got excited about um, the collection. And so I'd say maybe I had written two or three, possibly four essays, and then I started seeing that. I, I had written three or four essays that could possibly fit together but then I, when I really thought about that pop culture connection um, and, and Cold War, and then um, a little bit later, like toward the end of, of Riley's collection, I wrote uh, the essay, Choose Your Own Adventure for 80s Kids. And that actually really, even though I thought the, S- the collection was almost done, that one, that one actually kind of changed it for me. Because I really wasn't just writing about the Cold War but all of the 80s fears that we had, and there were so many of them. Um, so that was when the the 
sort of the final form of the collection solidified. So I want to start like by talking about that. Choose your adventure. I'm glad you brought it up. It's your first essay in here, and reading it, I was just like, yes, <laughs> this is pretty much my childhood, right? Um, not only in the choose your own adventure form, but all of the ways that the van is going to come and take me away. Um, and Satan's probably involved somehow with that van, all of that. And so can you talk a little bit? Let's talk. I mean, you have about, what, 20, 21 essays in here, so um, we can pick and choose some. But can you talk a little bit about that um, Choose Your Own Adventure and the choice to write that and sort of what you were trying to do with that? Because it's, lo- it's great. <laughs> so I actually, I, I don't always have good origin stories. With my this one actually has a, a, a good origin story. And um, it actually started with Twitter. And I'm using the old name because this was the old place. Um, I'm not a fan of the new place, by the way. <laughs> um, I had I had been thinking about quicksand because it just seemed like quicksand was everywhere on TV shows in the late 70s and early 80s. You know, like everybody was falling into quicksand all the time. And I had just, I had tweeted about it. I had said something about I don't even remember what the tweet was. It was something about quicksand and how many other people thought there was going to be a lot more quicksand in adulthood. Um, and there were so many responses to it. A lot of people were, and then other people were adding. And don't forget Stranger Danger. And don't forget you know the ozone being eaten by all of the hairspray. Um, and, uh, you know, the Satanists. And so I followed that up. I was like, okay, here are all the fears that I'm seeing. And I don't, again, I don't remember the, the exact tweet, but it one that one went even crazier with people talking about all of it. And there were, it, it was just the common things. And like you said, I wasn't stealing these ideas. I was just putting check marks on them. Like, yep, quicksand. Okay. Up oh, the white van check mark you know um the uh you know the razor blade and halloween candy check mark um and so i i realized that, like this is this is hitting a nerve and i, I don't know wh- why my mind actually made the jump to the choose your own adventure books except for the fact that in my memory every page you turned to was you were dead and I know that's not true, but it, it's kind of, I think it's a emblematic maybe of what I'm trying to say in the book that so much, we I don't think that we even often realize how much of our lives were affected by the fears that we carried around. And most of them completely irrational, um, you know, completely irrational. Um, so it, it was sort of, I, I was just thinking about, like, I talked to... Um, uh, my partner, the the book is dedicated to Jennifer. Um, she's the same age, and we actually went to high school together, um, from like third grade to high school, and and so you know we've talked about we've talked about this a lot. And um, she remembers reading very different choose your own adventure books than I remember reading because I guess I was reading the adventure ones. Uh, you know, I d- definitely remember there was one about Robin Hood, and it seemed like every page I turned to, I was getting arrested. Uh, by the sheriff or getting shot by arrows or maybe even my own men were turning on me or you know it just it like it seemed like all of them were bad and I, I think it's very emblematic of the way you know there were so many different fears in the 80s so 
I just started kind of channeling all of that into a little two-year-old adventure story, which was, it's, believe it or not, I, I know it's, a, it's, it's, you know, everything that happens in the essay is horrible, but my God, I had so much fun writing it. You know, it was, it was like killing the demons of your past. It's, I, I will say that it seemed like fun, right? I'm like, it, and, and I will say that most, you brought back the quicksand memories for me. And then I like started to recall all the television shows where quicksand existed and people were trying to save other people from quicksand. I think especially, I think there was even like the Slee Stacks might've been in quicksand at some point. Like it was so, like so many, Um, but yes, like I'm like, this is kind of horrific, but it's hilarious, right? In those ways. Um, and it also, uh, I think one of the th things that I saw in reading your collection about these fears was also thinking about like, how do we, those fears still continue, right? So how do we take those away from our children or those who we love, right? We don't want them to have to grow with, up with those fears. And so I think about that too, like every time um, I love Halloween, but I'm always thinking about, oh, the razor blades or someone's going to poison. You know, all of those things keep coming up. And like, how do I never tell my children that that is a thing or um, to bleed into your like satanic panic one? Um, like I, my daughter's become obsessed with the band Kiss uh, and my mother would never want me to listen to Kiss because she really thought they were like Satan worshipers. Right. Because it's the satanic panic. So like. How do I explain that in a way that is like, listen to Kiss all you want. They're really not saint worshipers. And even if they are, who cares? Um, but that kind of thing. So I really appreciated that um, throughout that, that idea of like, how do we quelch these fears in order to not have them repeat? Yeah. So it, as soon as you said Kiss, my mind went, Kiss stands for Knights in Satan's Service. Because that's what we were told, right? ACDC meant Antichrist, Devil's Child. And there, it, it's it's hilarious. But, you know, the Halloween thing, you have a really short uh, story I wanted to tell you about. That. I also have to give a shout out to one of my grad school friends, um, uh, Jenny Noller uh, Johnson, is her, her last name now. But um, when we were in grad school, uh, I had my daughters were... Uh, like four and one when I first started grad school. But um, for Halloween, Jenny had a bunch of leftover Halloween candy and she brought it to my house to give to my daughters. And we were home, so she left it there. But instead of signing her name, she wrote like, you know, from the elf bunny. And we threw the candy away because I didn't know it was from her. And I didn't talk to her for like a week. And then she was like, oh, did you like the candy? It's like, oh my God, that was you. Like we threw it away because of, those fears, you know, and somebody sent me, somebody linked to me the, um, on this day and just a few days or weeks ago, uh, the Tylenol, the poison Tylenol that killed like seven people. Like, do you remember that one? Like my hand, my hand, completely flashed to that when I saw it. Oh no, this could be razor bladed. This could poison. This could have, you know. um, so yeah. And, and that's what you were saying about these things get into you. Like, I, I couldn't, like, I literally couldn't give them the candy. And it sounds so weird, but I couldn't do it. Right. Like, I will say, um, I have read, I mean, because I think it's this time where a number of, you know, Gen Xers are writing about, like, their experiences in the 80s. And the satanic panic stuff comes up all the time. 
Um, and I think that that is one of those things that even though it has been proven false, um, even though we have we now see like all the ways in which this was um, like hyper like and you talk about a um, quote unquote sort of former Satanist who came around and toured and I don't remember him um so I don't think that was part of my church experience, but I think that's one of those things that it's always coming. Like it's always in the back of my mind, like where, where's Satan? Cause Satan's everywhere. Right. Um, and I think that's one of those ingrained sort of fears that we have. Um, so it's always, I don't know if it's always nice, but it's kind of comforting to know that other people are still struggling or thinking through all of those things all the time. Yeah. The, uh, the satanic panic was, um, and, and, and I, what was weird to me was uh, after writing that essay and talking with people about it on social media, you know, my, I, I grew up in a, in a very small, actually I grew up outside a very small town in uh, rural Arkansas. And, um, you know, we had Satanists at our, you know, in our town. We absolutely did. Everybody knew it. You know, there was, there was, I think I, I wrote about this, but, you know, there was some kid, you know, his window blew out and there wasn't a tornado or any straight line winds and he had seen state, he had seen lights flashing. You know, there were just weird stories like that that people were passing around all the time. And, and the community is also, um, you know, a, like most towns in rural Arkansas, it's a very religious community. Um, like it, in the very downtown, the two tallest buildings are the Methodist Church and the Baptist Church, and they're right next door to one another. You know, so it's it's a very religious community, and those religious communities like that tend to be, especially in the South, they tend to be untrusting of you know any outsiders or anything outside of you know their conservative viewpoint so there were a lot of people who were rightly or not rightly who were uh irrationally scared of this you know and i mentioned in there you know i had a sunday school teacher who talked to us about the dangers of rock music and you know, we always heard about backward masking. If you spun the record backwards, it was telling you to worship Satan. Um, and it was just accepted as real. You know, it was 100% accepted as real. You know, um, Kiss that you mentioned earlier, absolutely they were knights of the Satan service, you know. Lots of people didn't even question that. They were just told that and they're like, oh yeah, well that's the way it is. And I think that's really what happened with the satanic panic. I'm writing, I'm working on a new book now that just sort of continues this whole idea. Um, and I was writing about um, the Adam Walsh case and the Eden Pats case and uh, Miss a the milk carton kids. And um, I was writing about different things like that and the serial killers of the 70s, you know, um, the FBI didn't even have the term serial serial killers in the 70s. It was like we actually didn't realize that there were people out there just very numerous people. And, of course, the Ted Bundy case was huge. And all of this um, factored together, you know, with 
the early 70s books. There was one called Michelle Remembers. Um, there was another one, the Satan something, I don't remember. And then Mike Warnke's book was The Satan Seller, I think was the title of it, or The Satan the Seller. Um, but Warnke was a supposedly former Satanist high priest. He had been in rituals. He had, um, I think he said that he never participated in, in uh, raids, but he had watched them or something along those lines. I know he murdered a cat at one point, uh, or somebody murdered a cat, and it, and it was all false. It was all false. And so I really wanted to use Mike Wernke as sort of the, you know, the basis of that essay because he actually exemplified exactly what the, you know, the satanic panic was. You know, it was it was people either trying to spread fear or use it to their own advantage somehow. And the people using it to their own advantage were the media because they were getting the, you know, we call it clicks now, but they were, get, you know, they were getting the major news stories because, you know, as we all know, fear sells, scare people, you know. And, you know, and one thing I think that uh, it was heightened by that may, or that helped to support this kind of fear that comes up throughout. And I think um, I, and I talk about this often when I talk about people writing about this time frame is the impact of Ronald Reagan. Right. And Reagan's presidency and what Reagan. I mean, you mentioned him a number of times and almost starting World War Three. Right. And some of those fears and anger that you had and. Um, trying to sort of, and so can you talk a little bit about that and how that kind of imp, like Reagan's presidency and just our child, our, our young adult life, right? Like I graduated in 1990. I think you did too, right? Like it was run by Ronald Reagan, um, basically and, and what he sort of, what that meant to be a teenager during that time. Yeah. You, you, it's impossible to talk about the eighties without talking about Reagan. Um, and I don't want to. I I don't want to talk too much about the new book that I'm working on. I go after him even harder in the new book, especially the um, well, the Adam Walsh case is, and this is really emblematic of of what Reagan did. Okay, so Eaton Pass. I am going to talk about this just a little bit because, like I said, it's it's this is this is just exemplifies Reagan exactly. So Eva Pats was walking to, I think, the school bus in 1979. He was six years old, and he was kidnapped and never seen again, ever. They never found his body. Um, they it eventually convicted someone of it, but they never found him. And then in 81, of course, Adam Walsh disappeared. And I think everybody knows who Adam Walsh was. And if you don't know Adam, you know his father, John, because then we got FBI's most wanted. Um, so the Reagan response to those two missing kids was to put together a task force and the task force, what they what they published, they actually published their, their findings and what their findings really said were just ways to keep nuclear families intact so that kids wouldn't be abducted by strangers. Well, it ignored the fact that like 90% of child abductions are by family members or friends of the family or someone the child knows, right? Um, because of this, we, we then get 
FBI's Most Wanted, which ran for like 25 years of telling us to always be on the lookout for people, right? These harsh, uh, uh, these two cases and Reagan's response to it, um, it sort of made us fear the other. They're saying that the response was, hey, keep families close together. Keep them intact. That's the nucleus of America, the nuclear family. Um, and yet that's, that wasn't where kids were being taken. The media was also complicit in this because they were misreporting child abductions. You know, they were reporting it at, you know, when kids would run away, when kids were taken in custody disputes, um, when, you know, when people were going through a divorce and one parent would take the child and go to another state or move back in with, you know, family members or something. They were reporting all of that as child abductions, vastly inflating the numbers. Well, this actually led to three strikes laws and mandatory minimums. Now, a lot of this, there's a lot of fear of drugs that helped this out too. But in, in a small part of it, this Reagan response led to the later Reagan response of mandatory minimums and three strikes laws and you know, vastly in, in inflating the prison numbers. So Reagan did a lot of things like that in in the 80s. Um, you know, Reagan ushered in what I call the God bless America phase of politics. Um, we don't hear anyone running for president anymore who doesn't say God bless America in their speeches. Reagan was the first one to ever do it. Um, and because of that, he won the religious right and the moral majority in the Christian coalition, and he crushed President Carter, who was, by the way, a thousand times better president and better person. But we ushered in the wave of, of, of you know, the Christian coalition, uh, politics, uh, right-wing politics being married to um, you know, the evangelical church um, in America. And we're still seeing all of those, you know, reverberations today. Um, we see how tightly married they are now. You can't, um, you can't exist in the Republican Party really without the evangelical church behind you. So, again, you know, that's Reagan's far-reaching um, programs are. I mean, they're they're still here. They're still with us. Yep. Well, in addition, like one of your pieces talks about like, and you also talk about this like Pepsi versus Coke. So it's like, though it's also his kind of pro business, um, like uh, you know, in the the policies that he put forth that we are still continuing to see the repercussions of that um, today as well. And that you need to be sort of pro business, you need to be pro capitalism because otherwise. The Russians are going to come and take us over and we can't be communists. Right. And, and so you bring that in with Pepsi versus Coke, which was really great. Right. Um, but like that comes through, too. And you talk about that, too. So can you talk a little bit about sort of what you were seeing with that as well? Yeah. The the medicine versus Coke, uh, the, the Cola Wars, it just when I started writing about that, it was just it was just fascinating to me how sort of, I don't, I don't know if I want to use the word exploited, but, you know, manipulated by capitalism into this sort of idea that these companies, like, they were absolutely 100% working together to 
reading this outcome, you know, um, Coke and Pepsi being rivals was the absolute best thing that ever could have happened to either country. And they used that. Um, the fact that we equated Coke with America and Pepsi with the Soviet Union, it, it just, it seems so strange to me now, but that's sort of what capitalism does. There was, there was an earlier version of that essay where uh, I, I I ended up cutting it um, for the book, but in an earlier version of that essay, uh, the Cold Cola Wars essay I'm talking about, I had a long list of rivals, of rival companies who used their rivalry against one another. And a lot of this, maybe even all of it, started in the 80s with the Cold Cola War. You know, Coke versus Pepsi, of course. Um, there was... Um, Avis versus Hertz and, and, and the rental car. There were, um, you know, so many different things, you know, even in sports, like in the 80s, you know, it was always Boston versus LA in basketball, you know. Uh, that was the big rivalry of the 80s until the late 80s when Jordan came around. Um, but, you know, you had that. It was always us or them. You know, my wrestling essay, I talk about how capitalism even played that – the capitalism and cold war we were seeing that in storylines of professional wrestling with uh nikolai volkov and and hulk hogan you know uh fighting one another you know hogan hogan took the you know the soviet flag and he was shining his boots with it you know at, at one point it, it was just all spectacle and drama and pop culture of a very real you know, war that was going on behind the scenes. You know, I mentioned several times how we almost ended everything in 83. And, you know, you were drinking our Cokes and Pepsis. And, you know, I was making fun of kids who liked Pepsi instead of Coke. But it's, it's, that's how it's, it's, it's how it's supposed to work, right? That's how capitalism is supposed to work. Yes, it made me think of even the like Wrangler jeans, the jeans, right? Like, are you going to wear Wranglers? Are you going to wear Lee's, Levi's? You know, which ones went to Russia? All of that. Um, you brought up your wrestling essay, and I really wanted to talk to you about it because I grew up in Minnesota. So um, professional wrestling is not only real. Um, we had a, you know, our governor was a professional wrestler. All uh, right. Yeah. Jesse Ventura. Uh -huh, yes. Jesse the body. Right. So it became right. like and so I really appreciate it. So can we talk a little bit about like that importance? I mean, I remember pay, start like it was Cindy Lauper's fault that I watched professional wrestling because I love and you mentioned her. Um, but I appreciated how you talked about like how important this like like that phenomenon of wrestling um, but also what it did to sort of cement what you're talking about, sort of this anti-other, this pro-capitalist, this pro-America sort of um, image. Um, so can you talk a bit about that essay and, and pro-wrestling? Yeah, so I I, uh, I first started watching pro-wrestling. I, I don't even remember how old I was. I, I'm actually been trying to research and find out. I, but I found on YouTube... Um, there's a collection of old Mid-South wrestling and I've been watching through it and I'm trying to, I remember some of the storylines, but I'm trying to get to the storyline, you know, I remember, um, but it's, it's really funny that professional wrestling, like how real that we 
thought it was. You know, I remember being upset, you know, like devastated, you know, like, you know, great football fans are devastated when their team loses in the playoffs. You know, I, I remember that feeling. And, and this is another thing that is sort of fun to look back at as a um, middle-aged man now, uh, maybe even on the other side of middle age. Um, and, and looking back at how obviously contrived the storylines are, but but watching the the old myths out, even you know at the very beginning, there are clear bad guys, and there are clear you know good guys, and they can switch. You know, can you can go from being a good guy to being a bad guy, and I've watched it happen. But the way the announcers will talk about the bad guys. Um, is is just amazing, and it, it's it's sort of amazing to me that I was that dumb <laughs> to believe to believe it. Um, but one of the things that I love about that essay is that wrestling was making its move into you know the huge arena spectacle that it is today. And when I first started watching, it was really I mean they were shot in light at what looked like high school gymnasiums. You know, and I mean, there's maybe 50 people in the crowd, you know, and then you see to, and I haven't watched wrestling in you know, 20 or 25 years, but every once in a while, if I'm flipping through the channels and I see it, I'll watch for a couple of seconds just at the spectacle, you know, and you still see people in the crowd, you know, the bad guys up there and they're just booing him like it, you know, like he has, you know, kicked their puppy. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm like, I wonder if professional wrestling was the beginning of fake news or, you know, if it's, it, it, if it somehow contributed to our, our willingness to believe things that obviously aren't true, you know, um, of course we didn't have the internet in the eighties, but it really shouldn't have been hard to figure out that, you know, Kamala, the Ugandan warrior was from Mississippi, you know? Um, and, there was also, and there was a lot of racism in the way that they portray. I was just watching. There's a there was a wrestler called the Junkyard Dog, who um, who was a black guy, and he was huge. You know, everybody loved him, and they're literally showing video of the Junkyard Dog going to hospitals and cheering up children. And then the next thing that they see is, you know, they cut to, you know, Kamala the Ugandan warrior or. Um, Mabuki, the green fire of the Orient, or something, you know, someone with this very racist persona. Um, and I'm like, wait, do they not, are they, are they not like really uh, understanding this or are they not expecting the crowd to understand it? Are there, and, and what it is is just playing off of the tropes of otherness. You know, uh, there was a manager, his name was Skandar Akbar. Which uh, you know, that's a really weird name. Anyway, I'm pretty sure that's not a standard Arabic name. Um, but you know, and he wasn't. I think he was from. He, I think he was from Texas. He might have had like a, a you know a tiny bit of Eastern descent or something. But he was always, you know, always, always a bad guy. And the common thread with these bad guys often is that. Not only were they were they were disrespectful of you know the institution air quote the institution of professional wrestling, but oftentimes they were disrespectful to 
the powers that be, sometimes the United States, especially when um, in the mid '80s when they started bringing in, uh, you know, wrestlers from supposedly from the Soviet Union or Iran. There was um, uh, the Iron Sheik who actually just passed away recently. Um, but and then they really started playing on that. Um, that other that's from anyone from a country that the United States did not like was obviously a wrestler that we were not supposed to like. Right. And I, that, there are two things in that. Essay. I mean, there are many things, but there are two things. Um, one, I live in this small town, maybe 20,000 people. We like to say that many, you know, a small college town. Um, and uh, there's, there were, there's a, a family from California who moved here bought an old church and now we have professional wrestling once a month in the old church like you know it's very much like very amateur you know but it is theater right in these wonderful ways and, and so you know and we get all of that right but yes um like people jumping off the you know balcony pews into the thing um i i have not been there when the organ has been played but the big organs there and that is played but it also there's controversy because you can't have wrestling at a church right like it builds like all of this when i go in there builds into some of that kind of uh, residual panic of the 80s um and those spaces but uh but it's fascinating to see how that continues to play out um and the and and sometimes it's much more diverse in um who is wrestling and who is watching but still some of those tropes for me are really troubling and problematic even if they're kind of trying to push at them because of exactly what you're talking about that otherness yeah as you mentioned spectacle Right. So have you ever seen the movie Cabin in the Woods? Mm-hmm. So where the whole thing is like creating the like this huge spectacle for an audience. Right. And so what they're doing is like it's a meta commentary on for the horror trope itself, how audiences apt to keep getting more and more scares and shocks and gore to be satisfied. And we also saw that in professional wrestling in the 80s. So when, you know, a feud between two people would get really bad, they would have a steel cage match or they would have an I quit match or they would have, there was one called a, like a Mexican sombrero death match. And it was like, they would put a Mexican sombrero like 20 feet up on this pole and the first wrestler to, you know, to climb up and get it and wins. You know, I, it's just bigger and bigger spectacle. And you also saw that with WrestleMania. Um, and then uh, on the uh, WrestleMania was the World Wrestling Federation, the National Wrestling Alliance, the NWA, they had Starcade, which never was as big as WrestleMania, but it was huge. And also in the way of 80s uh, ordering things, if you couldn't watch it on pay-per-view six months later, you could order the video through the mail. Right. So that's how we watch, you know, that's how we watch the, a lot of that stuff. But, you know, in every one of those, you know, WrestleMania, you know, something bigger and something badder every time. Um, I think in the first WrestleMania, there's like a a 20 man battle royal where the last person, you know, in the cage, like, yep, or not in the cage, but in the ring, you have to throw everybody else out to win. Um, there's all the stuff. So we definitely saw that escalation spectacle between 
And you mentioned um, like getting the video in the mail. And one of the other things that I really love that you talked about in this essay that was kind of like your friend calling up all the time and being like, is the video there? Is the video there? Because I, we would do that. But I still remember when me and Bridget, um, Casey, were waiting to like see Duran Duran's uncut girls on film because you couldn't see uncut girls on film because there were naked girls on it. So we could not wait to get like the whole stream so we could see the uncut version of all Duran Duran. Right. Um, and so like that was like so I was laughing so hard. And then my 13 year old was like, our flag means death. I have to wait a week before I can watch the next episode. And I'm like, listen, I had to wait. And I'm like, and if my wasn't there or my mom was like, we're going to church on Wednesday instead of you watching this show, I never got to see the episode. So I have no sympathy. <laughs> but it reminded me of that. Like we like that idea of we all wait. There were certain things we'd wait for or we couldn't wait for. And, you know. And all of that. And so I appreciated sort of those little things in there, too, where I was like, yep, I remember waiting for my videos. Yeah, I was just thinking about um, like Friday night videos and like waiting all week for Friday night videos. And I think by then I might have had a VCR. So you would plug the VCR in and you would have a blank tape in there ready. And if one of your favorite videos came on, you would record it. And I'm realizing that I probably sound right now like, you know, when my grandfather would tell me, well, you know, Sonny, cars didn't have automatic until, you know. It seems weird because I could, I, the video you just mentioned, we could both watch it within three seconds. Mm -hmm. We could type it up and you could put it on the screen and we could watch it right now. And yeah, like, you, you know, if you missed it, you missed it. Well, and one thing you bring up, you know, you bring up video games too. And now, like I was talking to my son about uh, playing when I played Mortal Kombat, right? And so now I'm like, we would sit and we would literally have pieces of paper and we write down like, here's what we do. Here are the cheats, right? And you pass them around. Um, and I still remember in fifth grade in Missy's basement and Missy and I are still really good friends. Um, like she got an Atari. Like she was the first one to get an Atari. So we got to play Atari. But he's like, now the cheats, like they're just, they come with the game, right? You don't even have to like hunt for them. And so you talk about sort of gaming and you play very different games than I did. Um, but and going even to the mall and like, which of those four games can you play with your four quarters? Um, so that idea too, and sort of how, um, and so I'd love for you to, yeah, talk a little bit about that and those like that experience with video games and gaming and kind of how that shapes some of who you are and some of what you wrote about. Yeah. First of all, let me say that I'm, I'm so happy that you asked about the wrestling essay and the video game essay, because I think, I think those two might potentially have the smallest audience, you know, like. If you didn't experience that, then maybe those essays, you know, might not be as good as some of the other ones for you. So I'm really, it's really comforting, you know, that you kind of latched onto those two because, um, yeah, I, you know, I took a little walk down memory lane writing, uh, the video game essay because, you know, I've just, I've always loved them. Um, growing up with them, I was, I was captivated by them. You know, I was also... You know, the kid who, when I started reading, uh, you know, I was reading Tolkien and, and, um, 
you know, got into, you know, other fantasy for that. I mean, I actually started writing because of you know, fantasy and science fiction. That was what, what I really loved to read. And, you know, at one point I just started writing it. So, um, and I still write a little bit of, of fantasy and sci-fi. So I was always drawn to that, you know, um, asteroids, the very first Atari game, you know, I can remember, um, Playing. And when we got the, my Atari, you know, the whole family would come over. I mean, aunts and uncles, you know, my grandparents, you know, who were, you know, like probably in their sixties by then. And, you know, TV hadn't been invented when, but <laughs> or, or, or like they, no one had TVs when they were growing. I think the TV obviously invented, but, you know, um, they didn't, know any of that um i saw this funny uh i saw this funny meme the other a meme that someone made up but it was talking about the atari and it was like it had one joystick and one button and your aunt still couldn't figure out what she was supposed to do you know because it but it was video games were so new you know especially home consoles you know our generation saw the rise of the home of the home console and I don't, you know, that, again, that's another thing that makes us sound so old, but, you know, we didn't have computer games because we didn't have computers, you know, that we hadn't even gotten into really into the, you know, the home personal computer era yet. Um, so it was just, you know, it was just fascinating. Here's this thing. You can inhabit this other world, this, this crazy, you know, thing. And I just, I just never quit playing video games. You know, I, I still play games today the i i don't I, I mean i can i can if i could travel back in time i i could probably send you know my 17 year old self into you know some sort of you know apoplectic fit you know like, oh look at the graphics now and my um my younger daughter uh she's uh 23 and uh, i have an old nintendo system and sometimes she comes and stays with me up. Um, and she always, always, always comments about the graphics, you know. You know, and of course Nintendo graphics were just light years ahead of what Atari was. And even then, you know, they I mean they look like what they are. They're very early video games, but we just thought they were just the greatest thing ever. Ever. And I still remember my father was a school teacher, elementary school teacher. And so there was a point where they each had like a computer in their class and he was allowed during um, winter break to bring it home. And then we could all die of dysentery. Right. Um, and just play a Oregon Trail. And now there's like I'm like, what's this nonsense with this Oregon Trail that has these beautiful like graphics and it's in color and you move through. I'm like, no. And so that brought back that all of that um, and sort of what we were able to do or not do at school but yeah I appreciated all those um, memories and thinking about yes how much it has changed how much um, gaming has sort of changed and become part of our culture in right and popular culture and uh, you know in these ways that I never would have thought it would right yeah yeah and, and another thing like well like you just said you know I clearly remember when we got a couple of like Commodore 64 computers. I was in third grade and I remember just, you know, but again, our generation grew up with that. We had, 
those few Commodore computers. And then by the time, I think by the time I was in junior high, the schools had switched over to like Tandy 1000s, which, you know, they were so much better than Commodore 64s. You know, they probably have about 150th the memory of your phone. Um, but, you know, we thought they were, you know, we thought they were great. And then, you know, we just, we watched the computers come into the classroom and then we watched learning being integrated. You know, I think I was in my first year of college when our professor say email and I remember sort of, you know, I, I shouldn't say this. I really shouldn't say this, but I remember laughing and thinking, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. He's going to check their email on the computer, you know? Um, but he, so, you know, our generation has, has watched all of this. And I sort of get, I actually get very annoyed um, with that, um, you know, the idea that older people, you know, don't understand technology. And I'm sure it is for, uh, you know, some boomers who literally had nothing, you know, but at the same time, when, I mean, when I was like 11, I would get my VCR and when we went to rent movies, I would rent a VCR from them and I figured out how to record that. I mean, I was pirating movies. I wasn't selling them. Settle down, FCC. I wasn't selling them, but like if I rented, you know, if I rented a wrestling video, I would record it so I could watch it later. And of course, every time you recorded it, it got worse. The picture got worse and worse. But you know, I mean, we were figuring out how to do, I was figuring out how to record on video, my Commodore 64 games that I would play on monitor. Uh, we were figuring out cool stuff like that, you know? So. Yes, we, yes, yes. We can bring it, right? <laughs> yeah, we can. <laughs> we figured out you know, how to edit videos without a computer before computer this. Yeah. So. And editing, editing on the big, huge. Yes. Like how do we cut this out? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So mm -hmm. settle, settle down. Uh, <laughs> Lady Eels who keep writing those articles about how Gen X doesn't know anything. Well, they, or they just forget about Gen <laughs> X. What did you ever do? Right. <laughs> So another um because another one I want to talk we have to talk about is breakdown and right and um we talked a little bit about this um prior to recording but um I the I appreciate you not only talk about sort of the ways in which um again capitalism and consumerism took over rap music and took over these space right are are completely and always stealing from um black people and black bodies right um but also then uh, the the horrificness of the chicago bears super bowl shuffle um so <laughs> let's so can you talk a bit about that essay and what you were doing in that essay and then we can um rag on all the chicago bears because i don't even did they win last night i should look um because they were losing everything so i feel good about ragging on them anyway yeah, well, I live in I live uh, pretty close to Kansas City now, and I know Kansas City. I think just beat the right Kansas City just beat Chicago a couple of days ago. So throw that in. Um, yeah, the um, I just remembered, and it I I have like I I set this up, you know, and I'm talking about I'm talking about race in it, but but I had you know I had this I had to set the stage. You know, I, I grew up in an all-white 
town. And I mean, it was a hundred percent white. Um, I didn't know people of color growing up. Um, you know, I just not intimately. Um, but I remember when, you know, it was with, you know, early eighties break dancing when that, when it was the first time that I had ever really experienced a culture outside my own. Right. Um, if you think about it, most of the, you know, TV shows and movies, you know, and remember it, we don't have streaming services. It's not like we can choose what to watch. We're watching what's on TV or, you know, what we can rent at our, you know, small town, uh, rental store that probably has, you know, 200 videos total. Um, most of the things that we were watching were white shows because that was what was on TV. Um, you know, so this was the first time that a lot of us had, had ever experienced a culture outside of our own. And you know, I, I fell in love with it. I, you know, I think a lot of this actually, um, while I'm appreciative of the town that I grew up in, and, you know, I love a lot of the people there and it's, it's a great place. And in many ways, got to some problems. Um, but I love the town. I just think that I, I always wanted to get out. I always want, you know, I was always trying to immerse myself in, you know, the Hobbit or playing asteroids or, you know, Super Mario Brothers or professional wrestling or, you know, um, music or, you know, any of the other things, um, that we've, you know, that we've been, we've been talking about. So I, you know, I fell in love with it. I didn't, I didn't understand really what was going on, but it was so different than what we had. You know? Um, you know, my parents were listening to Kenny Rogers, um, you know, driving us to school. And um, this was just so different that it was, you know, it was fascinating. Um, so I really, I really loved that. And then we started seeing, you know, white kids bringing, you know, what they called boom boxes uh, to school. And then, you know, we were, you know, sort of adopting this, you know, breakdancing and rap culture without understanding it. You know, and I think it, it probably took me until uh, listening to NWA's first um, album, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, listening to the lyrics and thinking about, okay, that's not, that's not my experience in life. So that was, you know, that was sort of eye opening. And, uh, you know, I mentioned a point in there, but, you know, our parents didn't really know what we were, you know, what we were doing, what, we were, you know, what, yeah, I, I appreciate. Yeah, when you talk about going to the um, football game and um, and sort of how what you were, you know, at least can reflect on now and what you were seeing and what that meant, and and I think that shows the complications and the complexity and and sort of what was going on during that. I mean, even still now, right? In these ways in which we consume and accept um in one way um but also try another in many many real ways yeah and that and the end of that essay um you know so it, it ends with that you know racist remark and then you know my uh sort of attempts to rewrite you know the the history of the past and racism 
you know, is it, white racism is, is born out of, you know, the idea that the other is going to take over. But I think it's also that, you know, ultimately we're inferior, you know, and, you know, basically just getting our butt kicked uh, by a black team, I think is where that racist comment was born out of. Um, but like you said, you know, the comment has to be in that person for it to be brought out. So it's, you know, it's a very, it's a very complex, it's a very, for me, it's, it's a complex way to think about my past. Um, you know, it's very hurtful to think that, um, you know, that those types of thoughts and ideas exist in a town that to me was pretty special growing up. You know, and that's and and that's that's difficult to deal with, but of course it has to be dealt with, otherwise it will continue happening. And you know, I think that's our job as writers to maybe not stop things, but at least point them out when they're happening. You know, and make other people aware of them. Or at least, I guess that's what I was trying to do in that yep. episode. Yeah, I think it did, and um, and I think in a in a great way. You're also kind of pointing out too, like because we need to talk about that Super Bowl shuffle, um, but it also is talking about that commodification, the ways in which, like, I always think that um, gangster rap is so popular because it was a way for um, businessmen to sell that, like, black men with guns is far less scary to them than black men with um, credentials and and like political as political activists right when you have a message that's activism and social change and knowledge that's much scarier right and so and the super bowl shuffle kind of feeds into that like this corny like there's nothing real going on here it's just a joke um and so can you yeah let's talk uh, talk about the super bowl shuffle a little bit okay so um uh our, our, our host here is referring to, we were talking a little bit before that cameras started rolling. And, and what I said was, is that, um, the Super Bowl shuffle is probably the worst song ever written. Uh, besides I bless the range down in Africa, by Toyota, um, which is also, I'm probably going to get some hate mail for that, but it's bad. And, and I can explain why, or Steve Allman, Steve Allman can explain why Google Steve Allman, uh, Africa. But the Super Bowl Shuffle is terrible. It's 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 literally one of the worst songs ever written, and the video is even worse. And if you disbelieve me, please go watch it and then write your apology letter because it is bad. And, and I'm I'm trying to say I'm saying this with levity. Um, I hope you can hear the laughter in my voice. But it is terrible, and the way that they dance. In the video, and they're not actually playing the instruments; they're just holding them, and they're doing what I call the white guy slide shuffle, where you that you take like sort of two kind of steps to the right, and you kind of slide back to the left, and you just repeat it. You know, um, it's it's for people who don't know how to dance, which it, it's how I dance. Okay, um, but that's what they're doing throughout the whole video, and it's just it's it's just so. Terrible, but like you mentioned, that the commodification of rap, it was it was becoming big. People were writing, you know, songs that were getting airplay. I think Ice T was starting then, and uh, um, uh, 
uh, the first gangster rap songs um, were coming out, and and NWA was you know actually getting some airtime after they changed some of the lyrics of their songs. Um, oh, and then of course you had the controversy over the real lyrics versus the Walmart lyrics because I think I think it was Walmart specifically that made them put out like you know G versions of their lyrics and they wouldn't sell their albums. Um, but yeah, it's all these people trying to cash in on rap and like the Super Bowl shuffle, besides the fact that it's just bad itself, it, it's bad because it, it takes none of the lessons of rap. It, it takes none of the um, rhythms of rap. It takes none of the uh, heart of rap. You know, when NWA wrote Fuck the Police... They were writing about an actual incident that had just happened. They weren't writing, you know, theoretically about something. You know, they were writing about a thing that had actually happened to them and that they saw happen over and over and over and over of young black men being harassed, you know? And and to me, that was such an important moment in my life because I didn't know that. I didn't understand that. I hadn't seen that. I hadn't grown up in that area. The way it was reported to me was that black people were gang members and sold drugs, and that's why the police constantly had to be on top of them. That's the way we saw it in white America, and it wasn't that way. But Super Bowl Shuffle doesn't have any of that. It's a parody. It's, you know, it's it's this lifeless commodification based on a sports win. And it's like, it's, you know, rap music is important and it's vibrant and that is not. I'll accept it, all, all of you letters now. <laughs> it is so, it is so bad. I have rewatched that a couple times and you know what? The Chicago Bears deserve to be one and four this season um, and continue down their losing streaks. <laughs> they can be cursed by their ancestors. Um, so, I mean, we could probably talk forever, but I I do want to end. Like, I think you also end you end your series of essays too with some hope, right, and some love, and finding that. And so, um, can you talk a little bit about that, right? We can look at. I mean, you talk about anger and fear and all of that, but there's also some love there. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about that as well, and and how you wanted to sort of bring these all together? Yeah. Um... There's there's a few essays in there, optimism and the very last one, um, the sadness scale. That um, so my partner Jennifer told me that they weren't really they didn't really fit in the collection. And she was going off of this not only the the pop culture Cold War idea, but also rhythmically and theoretically though uh, there's a few essays that are a little bit different um and i knew what she was saying but i also overruled her um because i did want to i didn't want there to be a little bit of optimism a little bit of hope you know optimism it's a very short essay which it talks about how you know when i was a kid in the 70s like a very little kid in the 70s i remember all of these very hopeful scientific article 
and how science was just going to, it was just going to figure everything out. You know, even a nuclear war, we could figure that, we could figure out how to survive that. You know, the earth warming, we could figure that out. You know, we'll move into the ocean, we'll move to the moon, we'll move to Mars, you know, we'll do whatever it takes. And it was very hopeful. Um, and so I wanted to capture that a little bit. And then, of course, the last quote optimistic essay is called The Sadness Scale. And it's about how easy it is now to find sadness. But I also think that, that one ends on what I consider a, a, a positive anyway. And, you know, the fact that I, I, I you know, I, I think people get tired of hearing doom and gloom. I mean, it's one thing I'm not on Twitter as much anymore, whatever they call it now. Um, you know, it just, I, I just see so much doom and gloom, you know, um, yesterday when, when Kevin McCarthy was ousted as, as speaker, you know, I, I got on Twitter for like three seconds and I saw like five articles about, you know, one of them was like how this is actually bad for Democrats. And one of them was how this is actually good for Democrats. And one of them was, this is going to mean the end of the world as we know it. And one of them means who, you know, one of them was about who gives a shit about Kevin McCarthy. Let's talk about climate change. And it was just too much, you know? Um, so I, I wanted, I wanted to end with, with a little, uh, you know, I, I do think that we can, I do think that we can solve the problems. You know, we, we, we find scientific advances every day for the things that happen things that are happening and, and you know we find you know are are finding better ways you know we're investing more in solar energy we're investing more in you know renewable energy sources we're you know uh, we see steps towards you know justice and social justice you know but we've been programmed I have to not think about good things because we're always afraid you know and so I, I, I kind of wanted to point that out at, at the end, but that's just conditioning and we can recondition ourselves. Now, there's a lot of work to do. You know, we have lots and lots and lots of problems. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think we, I do think we can fix them. Maybe if we become a community, if we try. Right. And even if it's, even if it's not everything, if you're making an effort, there's a, at least something you can do to sort of fix. And we need to push to fix the lar right, larger things as well. But that doesn't mean that you can't fix a little bit of something, right? Yeah. That, that, see, that was another thing Reagan did, too. That You know, there's, there's a pretty large contingent of Christians in this country who don't care about the earth because they don't think we'll be here much longer. You know, and I think Reagan gave rise to that. We really saw it under George W. Um, there were lots and lots of people during that time who really thought that, ah, eh, why take care of this? We're not even going to be here. You know, that's something we need to work on. Right. Yeah, I was going to say that idea that, like, what I'm doing is not only for myself, it's for um, whether it is people after me, like, just because, like, I, I try to say that my goal, it shouldn't be hard for other people because it was hard for me, right? We often hear that, well, I had to do it, so they should have to do it. And I'm like, no, oh my, God. my goal I should be, so like, no. I hate it so much. Thank you, right? I'm like, it's in your goal. Be like, it was hard for me, so I don't want to make it hard for the next person. Like, I'm here so I can cha like, change that because be doing, it's hard sucks. <laughs> I, you know, and, and 
I I get the idea, you know, um, you know, if someone had to work hard when they were young, yeah, there's there's nothing wrong with having to work a little bit hard when you're young, you know, maybe put in a few extra hours to get in there. But the problem is that we we let it detonate like like everything else, and it's fine, I think, for someone to say maybe have to work a part-time job to help put themselves to through college the problem is when we don't understand that you can't put yourself through college with a part-time job and to me that's the difference right Mm -hmm. hey i had to work when i was going through college okay that's fine you know but you could you could work and pay your way and there's simply no way that people can do that now and those are the differences that we really have to be aware. Mm-hmm. Yes. So on that, I mean, we could probably talk forever because yes, yes, yes. But um, I will ask you my kind of final question, and you sort of uh, alluded to this uh, er- early on, but um, it's my like, what? How you want to plug anything? So you talked about working on a new collection. I know this is going to be coming out um, soon. Um, so. How, what do you want to promote? What do you want to plug? What do you want to tell us about? Uh, well, so I have a, I actually have a collection of essays um, on men and toxic masculinity that I'm looking for a uh, agent slash publisher for right now. Um, they're different essays, and then they're much more personal experiences. They're less research um they're a little bit more humorous i don't really every every once in a while someone will read my books and say oh you're really funny and i don't think i'm funny at all i i think there's zero humor in my books, so i'm always surprised at that but these are um you know they're a little bit funnier um i think the the, the first essay is when my younger daughter was in third grade um I was uh, a parent chaperone for a for a field trip that we went on, and um, while we were there, um, one of the other fathers pooped in his pants, um, and he was wearing white shorts, and it was you know very obvious that it happened. Um, and so it's essays like that where I'm basically my entire day I'm not thinking about my daughter. I'm not thinking about her joy at, you know, this, these cool, you know, um, field trip sites that we're going to. I'm just like, I'm, I'm focused on this guy and I'm thinking like, what if this haunts him for the rest of his life? That sort of thing. And then, you know, from there I go into like, you know, my daughter, what, what if I've done something because he didn't, he didn't know I apparently didn't know that the stain was there for a while. Like at some point in the day, he kind of cleaned it up, but he didn't know for a while. And so I get this metaphor of what if I've done something without even knowing it? Like how easy is it to mess up our children without even realizing that we've done it, you know? And the lens of this is is all through toxic masculinity example there was another another short essay in there where a friend of mine and i we were walking through the park and we saw this dad playing catch with his son he had a football and he was punting the football 
And as we watched, you know, the ball came down and his son missed it. And the dad says, God fucking damn it. I told you to catch the fucking ball. You know, we're just flabbergasted and like, wow, what? You know, what do what do we do here? We we have to do something. This, you know, that can't be allowed. And you know, so incidences like that um would sort of highlight the way toxic masculinity gets into us, the way that sometimes we're doing it without noticing it. Um that sort of thing. And then I'm working on a collection of essays now. Um, the idea that I have in my head, if this is not going to be the title, but it's something about icons, iconic things that have gotten into our culture. For example, there's, uh, I have an essay about, uh, the Pearl Jam Jeremy video and school shootings. Um, I have an essay about the This Is Your Brain on Drugs commercial and Nancy Reagan's Just Say No um, and sort of how that affected us. And then I think that I mentioned an essay about, um, it's called The Milk Carton Kids. That's actually, I've already got that one. It'll be be published um, within the next couple of months. Uh, It's called Milk Carton Kids and it's about uh, the disappearance of the and Adam Walsh and sort of the reverberations down the line. Uh, starting, it, it starts out with a personal story about um, one time in 2004, my daughters were like seven and four, and we lost them for about an hour um, downtown in the city that we lived in at the time. It's about 300,000 city. It was on the day of the, they were, they participated in the Christmas parade, and after the Christmas parade, we couldn't find them. They, they, they weren't where they were supposed to be. And I don't just mean my daughter. Everybody on the ride, on the float that they were on was missing. And we didn't know what was happening. And it took a long time to find them. And it was pretty terrifying. I can't even imagine. So, well, thank you so much for talking with me. Um, Paul Crenshaw, who is the author of Melt With Me, Coming of Age and Other 80s Perils. Thanks for being on New Books and Popular Culture. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. It was a lot of fun.